Chapter Six of the Great Apostasy by James E. Talmage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Matthias Whitney. The Great Apostasy by James E. Talmage. Chapter Six: Causes of the Apostasy, Internal Causes. The cruel persecution to which the adherents of Christianity and the church as an organized body were subjected during the first three centuries of our era have been treated as external causes contributing at least indirectly to the general apostasy details of judaistic and heathen opposition have been given with sufficient fullness to show that the unpopular church had a troubled existence and that such of its members as remained faithful to the tenets and principles of the gospel were martyrs in spirit if not in fact as would naturally be expected the immediate effect of persistent persecution on those who professed a belief in the divinity of the lord jesus was diverse and varied indeed it ranged from unrestrained enthusiasm expressed in frenzied clamoring for martyrdom to ready and abject apostasy with ostentatious display of devotion in idolatrous service many of the christian devotees developed a zeal amounting to mania and disregarding all prudence and discretion gloried in the prospect of winning the martyr's crown some who had been left unassailed felt themselves aggrieved and became their own accusers while others openly committed acts of aggression with intent to bring resentment upon themselves these extravagances were doubtless encouraged by the excessive veneration accorded to the memories and the bodily remains of those who had fallen as victims in the cause the reverential respect so rendered developed later into the impious practice of martyr worship commenting on the imprudent enthusiasm of early christians gibbon says the christians sometimes supplied by their voluntary declaration the want of an accuser rudely disturbed the public service of paganism and rushing in crowds round the tribunal of the magistrates called upon them to pronounce and to inflict the sentence of the law the behavior of the christians was too remarkable to escape the notice of the ancient philosophers but they seem to have received it with much less admiration than astonishment incapable of conceiving the motives which sometimes transported the fortitude of believers beyond the bound of prudence and reason they treated such an eagerness to die as the strange result of obstinate despair of stupid insensibility or of superstitious frenzy but there is another side to the picture while imprudent zealots invited dangers from which they might have remained exempt others affrighted at the possibility of being included among the victims voluntarily deserted the church and returned to heathen allegiances milner speaking of conditions existing in the third century and incorporating the words of cyprian bishop of carthage who lived at the time of the incident described says vast numbers lapsed into idolatry immediately even before men were accused as christians many ran to the forum and sacrificed to the gods as they were ordered and the crowds of apostates were so great that the magistrates wished to delay numbers of them till the next day but they were importuned by the wretched suppliants to be allowed to prove themselves heathens that very night in connection with the individual apostasy of church members under the pressure of persecution there arose among the provincial governors a practice of selling certificates or libels as these documents were called which attested that the persons therein mentioned had complied with the laws and sacrificed to the roman deities by producing these false declarations the opulent and timid christians were enabled to silence the malice of an informer 
and to reconcile in some measure their safety with their religion. A modification to this practice of quasi-apostasy consisted in procuring testimonials from persons of standing, certifying that the holders had abjured the gospel. These documents were presented to the heathen magistrates, and they, on receipt of a specified fee, granted exemption from the requirement of sacrificing to the pagan gods. As a result of these practices, whereby under favorable circumstances the wealthy could purchase immunity from persecution, and at the same time maintain a semblance of standing in the church, much dissension arose, the question being as to whether those who had thus shown their weakness could ever be received again into communion with the church. Persecution, at most, was but an indirect cause of the decline of Christianity and the perversion of the saving principles of the gospel of Christ. The greater and more immediate dangers threatening the church must be sought within the body itself. Indeed, the pressure of opposition from without served to restrain the bubbling springs of internal dissension, and actually delayed the more destructive eruptions of schism and heresy. A general review of the history of the church down to the end of the third century shows that the periods of comparative peace were periods of weakness and decline in spiritual earnestness, and that with the return of persecution came an awakening and a renewal in Christian devotion. Devout leaders of the people were not backward in declaring that each recurring period of persecution was a time of natural and necessary chastisement for the sin and corruption that had gained headway within the church. As to the condition of the church in the middle of the third century, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage, thus speaks. If the cause of our miseries be investigated, the cure of the wound may be found. The Lord would have his family to be tried, and because long peace had corrupted the discipline divinely revealed to us, the heavenly chastisement hath raised up our faith, which had lain almost dormant, and when by our sins we had deserved to suffer still more, the merciful Lord so moderated all things, that the whole scene rather deserves the name of a trial than a persecution. Each had been bent on improving his patrimony, and had forgotten what believers had done under the apostles, and what they ought always to do. They were brooding over the arts of amassing wealth. The pastors and the deacons each forgot their duty. Works of mercy were neglected, and discipline was at the lowest ebb. Luxury and effeminacy prevailed. Meretricious arts and dress were cultivated. Frauds and deceit were practiced among brethren. Christians could unite themselves in matrimony with unbelievers, could swear not only without reverence, but even without veracity. With haughty asperity, they despised their ecclesiastical leaders, they railed against one another with outrageous acrimony, and conducted quarrels with determined malice. Even many bishops, who ought to be guides and patterns to the rest, neglecting the peculiar duties of their station, gave themselves up to secular pursuits. They deserted their places of residence and their flocks. They traveled through distant provinces in quest of pleasure and gain, gave no assistance to the needy brethren, but were insatiable in their thirst of money. They possessed estates by fraud and multiplied usury. What have we not deserved to suffer for such a conduct? Even the divine word hath foretold us what we might expect. If his children forsake my law, and walk not in my judgments, I will visit their offenses with the rod, and their sin with scourges. These things had been denounced and foretold but in vain. Our sins had brought our affairs to that pass, that because we had despised the Lord's directions, we were obliged to undergo a correction of our multiplied evils, and a trial of our faith by severe remedies. Milner 
who quotes approvingly the severe arraignment of the church in the third century as given above cannot be charged with bias against christian institutions inasmuch as his declared purpose in presenting to the world an additional history of the church of christ was to give due attention to certain phases of the subject slighted or neglected by earlier authors and notably to emphasize the piety not the wickedness of the professed followers of christ this author avowedly friendly to the church and her votaries admits the growing depravity of the christian sect and declares that toward the end of the third century the effect of the pentecostal outpouring of the holy spirit had become exhausted and that there remained little proof of any close relationship between christ and the church note his summary of conditions the era of its actual declension must be dated in the pacific part of diocletian's reign during this whole century the work of god in purity and power had been tending to decay the connection with philosophers was one of the principal causes outward peace and secular advantages completed the corruption ecclesiastical discipline which had been too strict was now relaxed exceedingly bishops and people were in a state of malice endless quarrels were fomented among contending parties and ambition and covetousness had in general gained the ascendancy in the christian church the faith of christ itself appeared now an ordinary business and here terminated or nearly so as far as appears that first great effusion of the spirit of god which began at the day of pentecost human depravity effected throughout a general decay of godliness and one generation of men elapsed with very slender proofs of the spiritual presence of christ with his church if further evidence be wanted as to the fires of disaffection smouldering within the church and so easily fanned into destructive flame let the testimony of eusebius be considered with respect to conditions characterizing the second half of the third century and in weighing his words let it be remembered that he had expressly recorded his purpose of writing in defense of the church and in support of her institutions he bewails the tranquillity preceding the diocletian outbreak because of its injurious effect upon both officers and members of the church these are his words but when by excessive liberty we sunk into indolence and sloth one envying and reviling another in different ways and when we were almost as it were on the point of taking up arms against each other and were assailing each other with words as with darts and spears prelates inveighing against prelates and people rising up against people and hypocrisy and dissimulation had arisen to the greater heights of malignity then the divine judgment which usually proceeds with a lenient hand whilst the multitudes were yet crowding into the church with gentle and mild visitations began to afflict its episcopacy the persecution having begun with those brethren that were in the army but with some but some that appeared to be our pastors deserting the law of piety were inflamed against each other with mutual strives only accumulating quarrels and threats rivalry hostility and hatred to each other only anxious to assert the government as a kind of sovereignty for themselves as further illustrative of the decline of the christian spirit towards the end of the third century milner quotes the following observations of eusebius an eye-witness of the conditions described the heavy hand of god's judgments began softly by little and little to visit us after his wonted manner but we were not at all moved with his hand nor took any pains to return to god we heaped sin upon sin 
judging like careless Epicureans, that God cared not for our sins, nor would ever visit us on account of them. And our pretended shepherds, laying aside the rule of godliness, practiced among themselves contention and division. He adds that the dreadful persecution of Diocletian was then inflicted on the church as a just punishment, and as the most proper chastisement for their iniquities. It will be remembered that the great change whereby the church was raised to a place of honor in the state occurred in the early part of the fourth century. It is a popular error to assume that the decay of the church as a spiritual institution dates from that time. The picture of the church declining as to spiritual power in exact proportion to increase of temporal influence and wealth has appealed to rhetoricians and writers of sensational literature. But such a picture does not present the truth. The church was saturated with the spirit of apostasy long before Constantine took it under his powerful protection by according it official standing in the state. In support of this statement, I quote again from Milner, the avowed friend of the church. I know it is common for authors to represent the great declension of Christianity to have taken place only after its external establishment under Constantine. But the evidence of history has compelled me to dissent from this view of things. In fact, we have seen that for a whole generation previous to the Diocletian persecution, few marks of superior piety appeared. Scarce a luminary of godliness existed, and it is not common in any age for a great work of the Spirit of God to be exhibited, but under the conduct of some remarkable saints, pastors, and reformers. This whole period, as well as the whole scene of the persecution, is very barren in such characters. Moral and philosophical and monastical instructions will not affect for men what is to be expected from evangelical doctrine. And if the faith of Christ was so much declined, and its decayed state ought to be dated from about the year 270, we need not wonder that such scenes as Eusebius hints at without any circumstantial details took place in the Christian world. He speaks also of the ambitious spirit of many in inspiring to the offices of the church the ill-judged and unlawful ordinations, the quarrels among confessors themselves, and the contentions excited by young demagogues in the very relics of the persecuted church, and the multiplied evils which their vices excited among Christians. How sadly must the Christian world have declined, which could thus conduct itself under the very rod of divine vengeance. Yet let not the infidel or the profane world triumph. It was not Christianity, but the departure from it, which brought on these evils. The foregoing embodies but a few of the many evidences that could be cited in demonstration of the fact that during the period immediately following the apostolic ministry, the period covered by the persecutions of the Christians by the heathen nations, the church was undergoing internal deterioration and was in a state of increasing perversion. Among the more detailed or more specific causes of the ever-widening departure from the spirit of the gospel of Christ, this rapidly growing apostasy, the following may be considered as important examples. 1. The corrupting of the simple principles of the gospel by the admixture of the so-called philosophic systems of the times. 2. Unauthorized additions to the ceremonies of the church and the introduction of vital changes in essential ordinances. 3. Unauthorized changes in church organization and government. We shall consider in due order each of the three causes here enumerated. 
it may appear that the conditions set forth in these specifications are more properly to be regarded as effects or results than as causes incident to the general apostasy that they are in the nature of evidences or proofs of a departure from the original constitution of the church rather than specific causes by which the fact of the apostasy is to be explained or accounted for cause and effect however are sometimes very intimately associated and resulting conditions may furnish the best demonstration of causes in operation each of the conditions given above as a specific cause of the progressive apostasy was at its inception an evidence of existing unsoundness and an active cause of the graver results that followed each succeeding manifestation of the spirit of apostasy was at once the result of earlier disaffection and the cause of later and more pronounced developments. End of chapter 6